morning. Good to uh, be in the Lord's house, in the Lord's uh, alley, place of worship, place where God's people can gather together and uh, worship Him. And so it's good to be here. It's good to have a place to be able to worship the Lord, and it's good to have a group of people to be able to come together with and enjoy each other's fellowship. And so I want to invite you this morning to the book of Mark, the uh, fourth chapter of Mark. Mark chapter number four. This morning's message is going to be kind of a one-off. I'm, it's uh, <clears throat> something the Lord has just been working with me on. I'm going to be starting a series probably not next week, but the following week in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so we'll be going through that together. But uh, this week, it is something that just kind of um, felt the Lord leading to, to talk about, to discuss, and um, share with you some truths from God's Word from Mark chapter number 4. One of the things, just as a, a preface to the, the text here, in the book of Mark, as well as in the other uh, Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ will um, often teach parables, teach through parables, teach through instruction, and then he will take his disciples aside and he will uh, explain things to them. He'll show them exactly what he meant. And so he had a very special relationship with his disciples that went beyond just kind of a general teaching, but it went to kind of that, that application point where he he wanted his disciples not only to know the truth intellectually, but for it to penetrate their hearts. And then he wanted them to, to make application to it. So what he would do often he, is he would test them. And you'll see this in the book of Mark clearly, but also in the other Gospels where he, he does a great deal of instruction. And then there's a trial. There's some type of test that they're put through. And the test that they're put through is meant to um, show them where they're at and it's meant to show them where they need to grow. And we all, we all have blind spots, don't we? Areas of our life that, are, that we're not trusting in the Lord. Does anybody else out there have blind spots like me? Okay, good. We all have blind spots. And they're, they're, they're areas that it's like you, you, you get really close to the Lord or you, you're walking close to the Lord. Things are going really well. He's kind of given you some instructions and you're excited about what you've learned and then he puts you through a test, and it, and it, and it proves to you that, that you're not there yet. You haven't arrived. It's, a, it's one of God's ways, I think, of always keeping us humble, but also it's one of his ways of, of maturing us in our, in our walk and our relationship with him. So in chapter number four, just to give you a little, little background, turn back with me to chapter number one. I want to kind of give you the heart of a few things as we enter into this study um, one of the things that you're going to find right away is Jesus Christ is teaching and uh, he says, let's go to the other side and um, he, let's go to the other side and uh, teach there, the other side of the, the uh, Sea of Galilee or also known as Lake uh, Gennesaret. And so he says, let's go to the other side. And I just want to point out to you, if you go back to chapter number one and uh, verse 35, he says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town, 
that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all, all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So you're going to see right away in our, in our text this morning, in our narrative in chapter number four, you're going to see the Lord says, let's go to the other side of the lake where we can preach there. And so it's not abnormal. Uh, this, this was the Lord's ministry. It was to move from place to place to preach the gospel and then to either be received by those who are there and then stay for a season um, like the Apostle Paul. But the Lord also told the apostles, if you go into a town and you preach the gospel and you're not received, in other words, you're not met with peace, then he says, dust off your shoes and go to the next town. And so this is not an abnormal flow of process. When the Lord says, let's go to the next town, this is why he came, um, this is what he came to do. He came to preach the gospel wherever uh, it would be received. And then if you go to chapter number three, um, let's see here. Chapter number three and verse seven Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edemia, and from beyond the Jordan and from beyond Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of this great crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So, secondly, in, in regards to just kind of a background, um, Jesus Christ is being pressed in this moment. He's being, he's, he's really, if you can kind of picture it, everybody's wanting to get their hands on the Lord because whatever he touches is, is healed. And so people are pressing in on him. And if you can imagine being in a crowd of people, uh, possibly thousands of people, and they're, and they're pressing in, and everybody's wanting to, to have a part of you, that's where Jesus Christ is at. And, and everywhere he goes, he's in this situation. So he, he tells his disciples, he says, have a boat ready for me when I get to the lake, when I get to the Sea of Galilee, have a boat ready. And what we'll do, because what was important to the Lord more than the miracle that he was performing of healing the people was the truth that he was teaching. So he says to them, have a boat ready for me, and we'll cast off to the off the shoreline where they can't, they can't bombard me, and then I will, then I will teach the truth to, to the people. And so that's kind of the, the situation where we're at. We see him here in chapter number four. He teaches uh, several parables throughout the beginning of the chapter. And really all he does is teach parables through the beginning, and then the very end he has a, he has a, he has a test, a trial. So he's like, have, have, he's like, okay, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the parable of the sower, the parable, um, the purpose of the parables, the parable of the lamp under the basket, the parable of the seed growing, parable of the mustard seed. All these are parables of the kingdom. He teaches all these parables of the kingdom, and then he puts those, he puts those disciples into a trial, into a test. And the reason why he's putting them into to a test is that that is, the, that is a a place where, they, where their faith in the kingdom, if you will, is, is, is proven. Or, um, in this case, uh, their lack of faith in the kingdom is proven. Have you guys ever been in that situation where you heard some really great information about something? Like, you got really excited because you just, maybe a new truth came to 
hard as you were reading the scriptures. You got really excited about it. And then, the, and then a test came that was meant to prove that scriptural truth, and it wasn't so exciting anymore. And that's where the disciples are at here. The Lord has just taught them some amazing truths, but now he's going to test them. He's going to prove them in how did you, how did you view these truths? Is it just intellectual, or was there actual um, a lesson learned? Are, are you different because of it? So he comes to the end of Mark 4, and he's going to tell them a story, or he's going to not tell them a story. He's going to put them into a storm. And uh, let's read it together if you want to follow along in Mark 4, beginning in verse 35. The scripture says, On that day, which is just a reference to the fact that this is the same day that he's al- he already has been teaching all day, He's been being bombarded with people. He's been teaching and instructing. He's on, on this same day. So it's evening time on the same day that he has been doing all of this stuff. It says, when evening has come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. So Jesus Christ has told the disciples, let's go across to the other side. Um, the emphasis of them taking him just as he was. It's just simply the implication that he did not come into shore. He did not uh, have a season where he was refreshed or anything like that. He was out there. He was teaching in the boat. He stayed in the boat, and he's now telling his disciples, let's go to the other side, and they're going to go from that place to the other side of the, of, the, um, of the lake or of the sea, as it's referred to in Scripture. And, and the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, was not a sea as we think of a sea. It was, it was a, a, large, a very large lake with very significant uh, storms, but it was in the Scriptures it's referred to in that way. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So the boat is, uh, the, the waves are beating against the, the, um, the boat. This storm has come up somewhat surprisingly. Um, I was trying to think of an analogy that would help us understand or grasp what was taking place. And if you've ever been in the Adirondack Mountains, you will, you, you will know that you can be literally, you can be in sunlight and beautiful weather and five to ten minutes later a storm can come up over those hills and, and literally just like that you're immediately in a storm. I remember we were up there in, in New York um, some years ago, it was probably 15 or 20 years ago, and uh, that was one of the most surprising things to me was how quickly a storm could come up on you. And in this, in this situation, at the, la- at the Sea of Galilee, it was known to being, to being in, a, in a low area. Matter of fact, this, I believe this is the lowest body of water that exists. And so it was in such a low area, and there were these hills that were surrounding it, and so, so the storm could immediately come up and winds could come through those uh, tunnels of the, of the hills and, and cause great winds and cause great waves and it would beat a boat apart. It would destroy a boat. So this is where they're at. The, the water is breaking into the boat and the boat is, is uh, filling up with water and, and the, the disciples are getting concerned. It says in verse 38, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion so we see where Jesus Christ is at in this moment, in this, in this situation. And I think the emphasis, and there, there are several different uh, 
um, applications or interpretations of this phrase that Jesus Christ was so confident in the Heavenly Father that it didn't bother him that he was in the middle of a storm. I think that there's application to that. Most of the commentators would say to you that Jesus Christ was so weary and so tired from all that he had faced that this is a truly a picture of Jesus Christ being a man, that he was so tired and so weary that he was able to sleep through a storm. And not just any storm, but I mean, we sleep through storms, right? Oh, maybe not so much in California, but in Nebraska, we knew and learned how to sleep through storms. But we weren't in a boat where the water is coming over the edges and, and, and beating down on the boat. We're, we're in a house where it's safe. Jesus Christ is in a, in a boat. The Bible says he's in the back of the ship or in the back of the boat. And he is sleeping on a cushion, which was made, that cushion was made there and placed there for a very, very weary uh, uh, sailor. So he's in that back. He's sleeping on this, on this cushion. And the waves are beating in. The water's coming over. Jesus Christ is so tired. He's so weary from all that he has has faced from all of the ministry that he has done. Just think with me for a minute. Where is he at? He's, he's on this boat. He has just healed thousands of people. He has just ministered to them. He has just taught his disciples many, many truths, right? He's done so much for his disciples in this moment. And, and, and he's in the boat. He's sleeping. He's weary. He's tired. He's worn out. And Jesus, and, 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 he's, and, and here's what the disciples say to him. They wake him up and they say, teacher, and in Matthew and in Luke, the, the, uh, I believe in, in, in Luke, it actually doubles up. It says, Master, Master, and, and they, they wake him up, and, and, and that's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think they wanted some help in this situation, but watch what they say to the Lord. They say, and he, uh, they say Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you, do you not care that we are going through this right now? The Bible says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And the calm that he's referring to here was an immediate calm. It wasn't something where the, storm, where the storm slowed down or the waves lowered or lessened or shrunk. It was a, an immediate calm. Uh, cure, if you will, and an immediate calm that was a supernatural calm that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, brought to the situation. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So in this situation, we get a picture, these storms, the, the storms that you're seeing here in, in Mark 4, uh, it's not something that's not common throughout Scripture. Uh, water, as a matter of fact, in Scripture is, is often an identification of turbulence. Um, you see often when someone's in a boat or in the psalmist, the psalmist refers a lot to water as being kind of a, tur a turbulent thing. And so when you see storms or you see water in the Scriptures, you, you know what he's referring to is, is turbulence. He's, he's referring to difficult times, challenging times that we face in our lives. And the storm here in this situation is no different. It's a little literal storm, but the emphasis is not necessarily on the storm as much as it is on the disciples' spirit in the storm. And like when Peter's walking on the water, right? The emphasis is not so much on the storm. The emphasis is on what is Peter's attitude in the storm. The storm doesn't really... We, we know that life is full of turbulence, right? We know that life is full of difficulty. That We know that life is full of challenges, 
we know that life is, is full of, I mean, we, we've got enough turbulence is going on right now in our own worlds to understand exactly what he's referring to when he talks about people going through turbulent times in their life. Each one of us has a turbulence that we can think of in this moment. Maybe it's a relationship turbulence or a maybe it's a financial turbulence or uh, maybe it's a turbulence because of what's going on in our culture or a physical turbulence. There's turbulence all around us today. The issue is not The issue is not whether or not there's turbulence. The issue is how do we deal with the turbulence? What is our our focus on in the turbulence? Where is Jesus at in our hearts, in our minds, in the midst of the turbulence that we face? I was thinking this morning of Psalm 42 where the scriptures the, scriptures talk about being just weary and tired and it refers to the waters going up over and the uh, uh, going up over their heads and they're they're sinking in, in the waters and, and it's it's a picture when things are getting bigger than we are when situations and circumstances are becoming more challenging than we we can control and we can understand and we can comprehend they're getting bigger than we are these are not moments that should surprise us these are moments that should challenge us these are moments that should prove us. And so when the, when the Lord here teaches his disciples, he gives them all this information, now, he, now he's going to prove them in this situation. And there are just a few things that I want you to consider as we consider this, this process, this journey that takes place, a few practical things that we can learn in this story, in, in this narrative. This is a literal narrative. If you will read it, you can, you can almost picture one of the apostles telling Mark. It, 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 it reads as if one apostle is telling another apostle exactly what happened. It, it's like first person, like this is what happened. And there's almost, you can, you can almost feel a, a level of intensity to the one who is speaking these words to, to Mark as he, as he writes them down and records them. So let's think about a few things this morning that might help us when we think about the trials that we're facing in life. Where is is Jesus at in the midst of all of these trials? Where is Jesus trying to teach us in these trials and what can we learn in these trials? The Bible says in verse 35 and 36, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Who is the one that makes the recommendation to go across to the other side? Who is the one that, that, that is fully knowledgeable of what's going to take place? He's not just leading them across to the other side, but he's leading them into a, he's leading them into a storm. He's leading them into a challenge. He's leading them into something difficult. Something very similar to the, the, we can go back and look at the book of Job and we could see God leading Job into a very, very challenging moment in his life and, and, and proving him and growing him, and maturing him, and perfecting him through the storm that God had orchestrated for Job. When we look at the book of Job, it wasn't Satan orchestrating things for Job. It was God orchestrating things for Job. And Satan was the vessel that God used to bring about the things that were orchestrated for Job. 
God wasn't, Jesus wasn't surprised that they were going to enter into a storm. He was very aware that they were going to enter into a storm. This was the means by which God was going to test their faith. He was the means by which God was going to prove their faith. It was the means by which God was going to grow them and mature them and perfect them as he desires for all of his people. Jesus Christ is the one that's pressing us into situations and circumstances, not so that we will collapse, not so that we will be afraid, but so that we will grow out of our fears, so that we will mature beyond our fears. God didn't put them in this situation so that they would be afraid. God put them in the situation so that it would expose their fears. Sometimes we... We, we want to blame circumstances. We're like, well, if this wouldn't have happened, then I wouldn't have done this. No, that happened and you did what you did because it was natural to you. It exposed you. It wasn't meant to, you're not, you're not someone who says, well, if they wouldn't have treated me like that, I wouldn't have blown off the handle at them. No, you blew at the, off the handle at them, not because of what they did, but because that, that, that opportunity was presented to you to expose you. Because that's the only way that you're going to be able to overcome your challenges or your difficulties or your turbulences in your life. One of the things that we note in this text is that the turbulence that's referenced here is not necessarily a storm that we see physically, which we do see physically. But the storm that we're really referring to in this text is a storm that is completely spiritual for his disciples. It's completely spiritual. And you'll see that at the end. It's a, it's a spiritual turbulence that is manifesting itself through a physical turbulence. And God is sending that physical turbulence to show them where they're at so that he can grow them. I believe that God does that with us today, that God sends us into trials and tribulations. God brings difficulties into our life so that he can show us where we're at. He can expose us for where we are so that we can then grow. One of the most one of, the, one of the greatest tools that God uses for maturing us and growing us is exposing us to begin with. A person will never grow until they first acknowledge where they're at. They acknowledge the challenges that they're facing. They acknowledge the, the weaknesses that they have. And then they can, they can seek out help. It's like the illustration of the person who is swimming in the, in the ocean and they, and they feel like they're a pretty good swimmer or, 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 or even in a, in a pool. They feel like they're a pretty good swimmer and they're in the middle of the ocean and the lifeguards and the, and the, the, the lifeboats go by and they say, hey, can we help you out of the water? I'm like, no, we're, 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 I'm fine. Until they realize that hours and hours and hours after that, that the boats aren't there anymore. There's no help to be given and now they're, now they're sinking. They didn't recognize the difficulty of their situation, the challenges of their situation, and therefore they neglected or rejected the help. For so many today, the gospel is not rejected because it's not good news. The gospel is rejected because they haven't come to recognize the bad news. The gospel is rejected because they haven't come to realize that they need Christ. Christ is not just an added addition to your program. Christ is the only one who can bring deliverance. Christ is the only one who can set you free from your sins. And until people realize that, they might be willing like Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, they might be willing to add Christ to their program, but they will not become a part of Christ's program. They won't get into the boat. 
Jesus brings this trial. He says, let us go. He, he, he initiates the, the process of them entering into this difficulty or this challenge. He goes on, and, and leaving the crowd, they took with them, and, and, and leaving the crowd, they, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. F- filling. So we notice that they enter into the storm, the storm comes up on them, um, it's, it's spontaneous, it's, it's, not something that you, it's not something that they expected, it's almost like you can picture them sitting in a very, very comfortable situation and then boom, like that, storms. Isn't that the way storms of life work? Right? If we could plan for them and prepare for them, oh, tomorrow this is going to happen, this is going to happen, it, it, it wouldn't be as, as helpful for our spiritual maturity. So what happens is, is those storms come up, they come up surprisingly. They surprise us. They catch us off guard. Your faith is not tested by things that don't catch you off guard. Your faith is tested by things that catch you off guard. This storm catches them off guard. Not only does it catch them off guard, this is a huge storm. This is not a small storm. This is a huge storm. It It is filling their boat with water. Their boat is getting ready to sink. And maybe you've been there before as well where things seem like they're getting ready to sink. I think we can, I think honestly we could probably say that we have all concluded about our own culture and our own country that we're, the water is getting in the boat, right? The boat's going down, Lord. And, and that's how we feel in that moment. The issue isn't whether or not things are getting difficult. The issue is, for we as Christians, is how is it impacting us? Where is Christ for us in these moments in these challenges. The Bible says, and so, so the boat is filling up. It's filling up with water. Things are getting bad. The, the, it's ultimately saying the boat's going down. And the Bible says that they, um, uh, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Jesus was in the, in the stern of the ship asleep. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And I just want to stop and meditate on this for a moment as well. Isn't that our natural response sometimes to our challenges, to our difficulties? Lord, do you, do you not care? I mean, just imagine with me for a moment, picture with me for a moment. Here, Jesus Christ has come into this world specifically for these men. He has taught them. He has fed them miraculously. He has healed them. He has given himself fully for them, Right? So in the middle of the first, the middle of this trial, in the middle of this storm, what should their question be? Should it maybe not be, Lord, do you care? We read it in hindsight, right? We get to read the rest of the story, but the reality of it is, isn't it not true that that's often how we respond in the midst of our challenges and difficulties? Lord, do you not care what we're going through? How many of you guys think the Lord cares what we're going through? He cares the trials that we're going through. He cares about the little things. Matter of fact, it's, it's more than the fact that he cares about those little things. He has orchestrated those things for our good and for his glory. They're not purposeless. The trials in our life, the difficulties in our life are not without purpose. They are there for a reason. And we, and we, and we ought not to wake up. And I think it's a natural response for these disciples to do, but he doesn't leave their natural response unrebuked, does he? 
Oh, Lord, you don't really care about us right now. We're going through all of this. You don't really care about America right now, do you, Lord? You don't really care about your church right now, do you, Lord? No, he does care. He does care. He cares greatly. And the reality of it is he cares so much that he's willing to let us go through the difficulty. He's willing to orchestrate some difficulties for us so that we can grow and mature. If you're a parent in here this morning, you know what it's like to let your kids go through difficulties so that they can grow and mature, don't you? If you care about them, you will let them face challenges. You will let them grow and mature. It's not that you don't care. It's that you're teaching them. You're helping them. He says, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? May we be challenged this morning never to look at trials in life, difficulties in life, as if God doesn't care. Because he does. And in verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and and said to the sea, peace be still. In other words, Jesus Christ wakes up from this uh, sleep and his first words are, quiet down. That's what he says. That's kind of the, the uh, way that it flows, quiet down. He speaks to the winds. He speaks to the waves. And it's a supernatural event that takes place that it is an, an immediate calm. It's interesting that what we can learn from that, the truth that we can learn from that reality is that at any moment in our lives, whatever turbulence you're going through, if Jesus decides to calm the wind and the storm, he can do it immediately. He can do it quickly. He can do it completely. So when we know that Jesus Christ has the power to calm the storm, right? And he doesn't. What do we conclude by that? If he has the power to calm the storm, but he doesn't, what do we conclude? He has a purpose for it. There's a reason. There's a reason for the storm. There's a purpose for the storm. In this case, he calms the storm. He says, peace, be still, immediate calm, complete calm, full calm. The waves, the waves didn't like slowly, like, okay, well, that one's five feet. Oh, now they're down to four feet and three. It's like five feet, no wave. This is how the Lord deals with our struggles, with our difficulties with our challenges. The Bible says, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I want you just to stop and meditate on that phrase for a moment here. Have you still no faith? The, the emphasis is on a, a, continual, a continual process. The Lord is already, if you, if you read the first four chapters, you'll find that the Lord has already performed many miracles in front of them. He's already healed. He's already cast out demons. He's already done a lot of things to prove himself. And his comment is, is do you still not have any faith? And it's interesting because he doesn't say, do you still have, he doesn't refer to their their faith as being incomplete. He refers to their faith as being absent. Do you still have no faith? So it's not like you have some faith but it's little, it's like they had no faith. They had no faith is what what he's referring to here. Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? This is what he asks him. This is the question that that he asks them. Do you still have no faith? And it's based upon how they responded in the midst of a storm. It's based upon how they responded when things got turbulent. This is a scary question. And I don't want to take it very, I don't want to take it lightly. 
Because I just think about us today in our culture, where we're at, we've hit some storms. I think we've had some pretty good storms lately, not physical storms, but, but political storms, economic storms. We've hit some pretty heavy-duty storms, right? And how we responded to those storms, the Lord, would the Lord say to us, have you still no faith? Because this is just a proving time for us, folks. This is a proving time for God's people. It's a time of testing. It's a time of trial. It's a time of proving. And the disciples were frantic. And the disciples were fearful. And the disciples were, were, were thinking God didn't care. They didn't even understand his character very well, did they? He says, have you still no faith? And the Bible says, he goes on, verse 41, it says, and they were, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the Bible says in uh, this, this phrase, two things that I want you to meditate on for just a moment. The Bible says that they were filled with great fear. In other words, the emphasis of this phrase is that the fear that they now had towards God was greater than the fear that they had towards the storm. In other words, the fear that they had towards God was what delivered them from the fear that they had towards the storm. They were actually set free from the fear of the storm because their fear of, their fear of God caused their fear of the storm to dissipate. I remember, uh, I remember watching the movie Jurassic Park. You, maybe you've seen Jurassic Park, but there's a scene, and I don't remember, there's a lot of Jurassic Parks out now, so I don't remember which one it was or uh, even if I'm going to get the scene right, but hopefully you'll get the story. But there's a part in that movie where there's these, these um, dinosaurs are chasing these people, and these people are just running frantically from these dinosaurs, knowing that their life is on the line, and they're possibly going to get eaten by these dinosaurs. And there comes a point where they, 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 they stop. They're, they're, I don't remember what happened, but there was something that kept them from running any further, and that dinosaur gets right up on them. And he's right there. I mean, literally, his mouth is open, and he's getting ready to crunch down on these poor people. And then behind him is Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? It is the T-Rex, and he, and, that, and he eats and devours that other dinosaur, and he destroys that other dinosaur. And you can kind of get the picture of what's happening is, is their fear isn't lessened because the dinosaur that was getting ready to eat them is gone, their fear is intensified because the dinosaur behind them is far greater than the dinosaur that was getting ready to eat them. The reality of it is, is God is far more fearful. God is, a, God is, a, God, God is, is to be feared so much more than any of the trials, difficulties, turbulences that we face in life. God is to be feared. And in that moment here, he's standing there, he's standing there on the boat and the disciples have just been in this extraordinary storm, but yet the one who is able to stand up and say to the storm, be still, they knew that he was more powerful than that storm. That created a great deal of fear within them because the one behind the storm, the one more powerful than the storm, had to be more, had to be more fearful, had to be someone to be feared greatly. He says to them that they, they were fill, filled with great or greater fear. They were filled with greater fear. I think sometimes we lack in a fear of God. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We lack in the fear of God such that we become so fearful of things. We cannot fear God. We can't, when we fear God rightly, we will not fear men. And in this moment, 
in this moment here, their fear of God surpassed their fear of men. We need to get a fear of God that's like that. A fear that overwhelms. And the neat thing is about the story is, is as you think about in that moment, this is a moment of great fear of the natural, but the supernatural comes into the scene and shows itself as being more fearful. But here's what calms the disciples, and I think here's what has to calm us. And this doesn't really fit into the T-Rex story because the T-Rex is just plain and simply bad, worse than the other dinosaur. But think about it for a moment. What brings us calm in that moment when we realize that God is so much more fearful than the storm that we're in? What brings us, what brings us calm? I mean, it's like, okay, that doesn't make me calm. <laughs> okay, there's a bigger dinosaur behind him that now wants to eat me? That doesn't make, make me calm, does it? Doesn't make you calm, does it? Here's what makes us calm is when we realize the dinosaur standing behind the dinosaur that wants to eat us is on our side. It's when we have the faith to believe that he is for us and not against us. Yes, he is a dreadful person. Yes, he is one to be feared with all of your might. He is to be feared above anything else. There's nothing that can happen in your life that is as fearful as God is. But that's what makes it so great when you realize that he is on your side, that he is bigger and badder and not in a bad way, but you get what I'm saying. He's bigger and badder than anything else. There's nothing. And so he stands up and he says to the wind and the waves, he's like, calm down. And they do. And man, the disciples begin to tremble because Jesus has power over what is natural because he is supernatural. We have to realize that the Lord is on our side. He is a fearful and dreadful being. He is God. We must realize that he is on our side. And that will bring us calm in these moments. The last thought I want you to, I want you to dwell on this morning is this. At the, end of the, at the end of the chapter, he says, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I want you to think about this. There are two things that the disciples learned that Jesus Christ was sovereign over, Right? What are they? The wind and the sea. The disciples learned that, the, that Jesus Christ was sovereign over the wind and the sea. He says, he says, even the wind and the sea obey him. In, in other words, what, what's happened in this, in this narrative in Mark is that they've learned several things that Jesus Christ is sovereign over, right? He's sovereign over sickness. He heals the sick. He's sovereign over demons. He cast out demons. They've learned, they're learning at this journey, they're learning that Jesus Christ is sovereign in these situations, that he is powerful and dreadfully powerful in these situations. He's dreadfully powerful over sickness. Is that true? Is Jesus dreadfully powerful over sickness? Is Jesus dreadfully powerful over demons? Is Jesus dreadfully powerful over the wind and the sea? Is he? Well, here's the question for us this morning is, what in our life is Jesus Christ not dreadfully powerful over? That's the question that these, that's the, that's the moment that these disciples come to at the very end of their, of their storm event. 
is they've come to recognize that Jesus Christ is more powerful than the waves and the sea. The question I ask for you guys this morning is what in your life, what in my life is Jesus Christ not more powerful over? Is it your marriage? Is it, a, is it an addiction? Is it a, a lust that you have? Something that comes and cumbers you down every single day? It, Jesus Christ is not more powerful than that? Jesus Christ is not dreadfully powerful in those moments. You see, for the disciples, they're growing and understanding what Jesus Christ is sovereign over. Who is this man? He is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has sovereign power over all things. And he's teaching his disciples slowly and and systematically what he is powerful over. The question that we face this morning is, is Jesus Christ more powerful than winds and waves? And we all say, yeah, Pastor, you just read the verse. What about your winds and waves? What about my winds and waves? What about my situations and circumstances and the turbulence that I'm going through right now? Is Jesus Christ there with us? Is he? Is he there with us? Does it seem like he doesn't care? I think he does care. There are areas in our lives, there are areas in my life, there are areas in your life today that the Lord is testing so that he can show you that's not an area that you have given me. That's not an area that you have trusted me. That's not an area that you see me as dreadfully powerful. That's not an area where you would see the little dinosaur and no longer fear him because of the greater dinosaur behind That's not an area that you've let go of yet. And what the Lord is doing in our life and what the Lord is doing in their life today in in, in this text is he is showing them areas that he is more powerful over. And I don't even know that the Lord was dealing with his power over the wind and the sea as much as he was dealing with the spiritual reality that everyone's life has storms. And what he is showing himself to be is the Lord in those storms. So we're in storms today. Our culture's in storms. Our families are in storms. Our families are challenged every single day. Morality of our families. Stability of our families. Unity of our families. Joy in our families. It's being challenged every moment of this day, of this period in our culture. Where is Jesus in all of that? I believe that he is dreadfully powerful over all of that. And I believe that we as Christians, what the Lord is calling us to this morning is he's calling us to a submitted surrender to his dreadful power over everything that we face in life. In coronavirus, Jesus Christ is dreadfully powerful over coronavirus. In politics, Jesus Christ is dreadfully powerful over politics. In everything that you're facing in your life right now, in your marriage problems, relationship problems, Jesus Christ is dreadfully powerful in those situations. Dreadfully powerful in those situations. Let me ask you something. We need to get to a place in our lives where we are, where we are so in tune with the dreadful power of God that it causes us to be totally totally free from the dread of man and the dread of this world.
So I want to encourage you this morning, challenge you as you think about your life and what you're going through. Know that the Lord is not, know that the Lord is not absent, that he is ushering you into difficulties to expose, to teach, to mature, and to perfect you. Know that he does care. Know that he does care. He cares in every situation, the little things and the big things. Know that he is more powerful than any circumstance or any situation that you will ever face. And in the end, know that he is growing, that he is maturing you for the purpose of freeing you from those things that you're in bondage to that bring you fear and dread. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, for this narrative. We thank you for um, the fact that we can trust in your power and in your strength and in your might, that we can know that you are dreadfully in control and that, Lord, our awe of you should surpass our fear of anything else. I pray that you would bless us with the knowledge of that this morning, that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts and that it would be all for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together, take communion. If you would like to join me, I, I want to just uh, stay in the book of Mark. And if you want to go to the 14th chapter of Mark. The, uh, what we say, we have some visitors with us this morning. We, we're so thankful that you're here. What we encourage people to uh, that are in our congregation with in regards to the Lord's Supper is that the main requirement that the scriptures give us is that you be a follower of Christ and that uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, then you should not take communion. You should not take the Lord's Supper. Matter of fact, if you take the Lord's Supper and you're not a follower of Christ, then the Lord says that there can be com consequences for that. So, the requirement is that you be a follower of Christ. We not only say that the requirement is that you be a follower of Christ, but that that, but that, that being a follower of Christ has, has borne fruit, if you will. In other words, it has manifested itself in repentance and manifested itself in faith. If you don't have repentance and faith in your life, then, um, then that's not a good sign of spiritual health, a relationship with Christ. And so we would encourage you not to partake with that being said, everybody who's a part of God's family, who has been born into his family by his, by his uh, rebirth and is now living in faith and repentance, we welcome you. This is a moment that we have been given by the Lord to remember what he did for us. It's a moment, a ceremony that we have been blessed with so that we can um, be reminded of the body and the blood of Christ. And so let's read how Mark describes for us the last supper or the Lord's Supper communion. In verse 12 of Mark 14, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And we will show you an upper room, a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples went out, uh, set out and went to the city. 
and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Just note as we go through here, just the, the um, fact that this was all organized. It, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't, he didn't say, go in and find a place for us to, to meet so that we can have the Lord's Supper. It was all planned. And Jesus didn't go to the town beforehand and say, hey, my disciples are going to come in the town. You know, give them a place. This, this was all sovereignly, divinely, spiritually organized by God. And everything was laid out in place by God for this moment and this event. And all of what God does is laid out in that way. And the Bible says in verse 17, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is, the one, it is one of the twelve. Let me just say this to you as well, verse 20. It's interesting that nobody knew who Judas was. When, they, when Jesus said someone's going to betray him, nobody pointed at Judas. I think that's an interesting thought. It's an interesting reality that we face. Here's a man who has walked three and a half years with the Lord, has preached with the Lord, walked with the Lord, and ultimately would be the devil. And nobody knew it. It just goes to show us that men are really good at hiding what's going on in their hearts, aren't they? Really good at hiding what's really going on in the inside. Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into a dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that that man... For that man, if he had never been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this, take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And we'll stop there in our reading. I'm going to pray over the elements. You are familiar with them. We take a, a wafer that is a representation. It's a picture, if you will, of the body of Christ being broken. We drink the cup, which is a picture of the blood of Christ being shed to seal our salvation to seal our salvation. We're going to take these elements and we're going to, to remember Christ in them. It's important that we know that they do not change our spiritual condition. They do not make us Christian. They do not make us more Christian. They are reminders of what Christ has done for us. They are a great opportunity for those who by faith receive them to be brought into a recognition of what Christ has done. So let's pray together, pray over these elements, and then we will partake of them. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you, most importantly, for the sacrifice that you made for our sins, that you came, that you lived a perfect life. You were born a virgin. You came into this world from heaven. You were not, um, you were eternal. You've always existed, and you were willing to, to, sacrifice or to lay down for a season those um, 
blessings, divine blessings that you experienced and had and were yours for a season to take on human form, to live like us, to suffer like us, to be tempted like us, to be, feel pain like us, to feel hurt like us. You, you gave up so much to have so little, and you did it that you might save us. We thank you for it. We thank you for living perfectly, for dying on the cross for our sins and for resurrecting the third day. Lord, may we never, in the reality of these things, may we never have an attitude of, do you really care? Whatever we're facing, Lord, may we always know that you care and may we seek to find the purpose in the situation and not focus so much on the situation itself. Thank you for this moment in which we remember your work in the cross and in the resurrection. And we pray your blessing upon you.